Good morning. We're continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke. We are in chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to Luke chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to keep the one that's in front of you. So we're continuing through Luke chapter 6, and as you're turning there, um, Friday, it's Good Friday, the Friday before Easter, we're going to have a service uh, of celebrating Good Friday, and so don't, you know, mark it on your calendars, don't forget, 5.30 p.m. right here at the church. I joke every year that we got lucky this year. Good Friday fell on Friday, and Larry would be the only one who laughs. I, he, he's there for me. He's, he's here to, you know, make me feel good about myself. So Luke chapter 6, we're going to pray and then we'll look and start working through the text. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that as uh, we come to celebrate um, the risen king, which we do every Sunday, Lord, we pray that uh, in the midst of our busy worlds that you would calm us down. Lord, help our minds to focus on the text. Lord, we ask that your spirit would illuminate its meaning, that we would rightly understand what happened in this story some 2,000 years ago in context. And Father, help us to bridge the gap to our lives today, Lord, that we would gain principles, Lord, of living and walking with you. Father, we are terribly sinful before you, and, and, and our hearts will lead us astray. Um, and so we come before you on our faces just asking for help, Lord, that you would guide us, that you would lead us, Lord, that you would soften our hearts, Lord, convict us where we're missing the mark, and Lord, allow us to be led by you. We love you, Father. We praise you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 6, verse 1. Now it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath, and his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating the grain. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone, and gave it to his companions. He was saying to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good? Or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to destroy it. After looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help me, Lord, to teach this text in a way that's true to the context, in a way that's relevant to us in our lives today. We love you, Lord. We praise you, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. Today, I'm, we're doing something a little bit different. Not too terribly different, but different for me most of all. Um, Josh has been here for about a week now, and we've been discussing this issue. And I, I know from our time of knowing each other, this subject matter hits close to home for him. It's, it's by his own words, is his own soapbox. And so I'm going to teach through the text quickly, hopefully, that I can get finished at a reasonable time. And then Josh is going to come up and share from his side 
of the story. And then I'm going to kind of then finish things up at the end. So it'll be a little bit different. Um, I'm going to move along through the text so that we can get to kind of the application part. The story is found in also found in Matthew chapter 12, the first 14 verses, and Mark chapter 2, verses 33, on into Mark chapter 3, verse 6. And so I'm not going to read those sections, but I may reference there so you can know where I'm talking about. Uh, the, the, the heart of this story, what I see is religious legalism. Man is very good at, at coming before the Lord, seeing what God says, and then creating a bunch of rules that God did not give us, and then appointing themselves cop over all of the believing world. And their job is to write tickets and, and tell them where they're wrong and to, to really condemn people. In my years of being a, a, a chaplain with the law enforcement community, I've come to understand there's two types of theologies. There's cop theology and there's fireman theology. Their jobs are totally different. A cop will come up on a scene. A guy will be terribly, I mean, horrible condition. And he just doesn't care about getting the guy help. I mean, he'll, he'll make the call for the fire department. Hey, we need code three here. Somebody's bleeding out. Look at so, sir, while you're still conscious, can you tell me what you did wrong, please? You have the right to remain silent, but anything you can will be used against you in court. How did you get yourself into this predicament? He's taking notes because he's got a, a claim. Now, a fireman comes on scene. They don't care what the issue was. They just want to know how to help the person. And so Christians, we've kind of have people in both camps. Christians who are more concerned about writing tickets, not having the heart of restoration and getting the person right. So we want, as much as I love cops, we want to be firemen when it comes to our spiritual life in Christ. And here in this story, the Pharisees, or some of the Pharisees, had taken a bunch of rules concerning the Sabbath, and they were basically criticizing Jesus. Kind of funny, looking back, since Jesus wrote the whole Bible, he orchestrated everything, created the Sabbath, gave us instructions, and they're writing their tickets to Jesus. And there's a lesson we need to learn from the Pharisees. See, they thought they had it all figured out and they missed everything. And we as Christians need to be humble before the Lord so that we don't miss what he's doing in our midst. Here at Valley Baptist Church, we strongly value the Bible. It's what I teach out of. We just go kind of line by line through books of the Bible. We take this book very seriously. The danger in this, or not, there's not a danger in studying the Bible. In my own life, in our humanity... The Bible God uses to convict us. We get convicted about certain things and we change practices in our life. Then years go by and we forget the principle behind the practice of why do we do what we do. And then we expect everybody to follow the same practice that we do. An example for in my own life. I don't drink. I do not consume alcohol. I have not consumed alcohol with the exception of NyQuil and communion when I was in Spain about uh, eight years ago. I have not consumed alcohol in 10 years. I did not stop drinking for religious reasons. I stopped drinking because I had a drinking problem. I was never given the gift of moderation. Anything worth doing is worth overdoing. <laughs> I tried the whole like just drinking like one glass of wine or one. It just always turned into many, many more. But then as the years went by, 
I started as I started becoming a Christian and going to Bible college and, you know, fo- you know, starting to wear dockers, tucking in my shirt and combing my hair, right? All of this stuff. I started thinking, drinking, it's of the devil altogether. This wasn't outside. This is in my heart, the playing field of my heart. And I would be in situations where I'd see what I thought was a mature Christian and there they're having a half a glass of wine with dinner. How could they? This like root of judgment started coming up in my heart. So much so that a few years ago, and the Lord stopped me from this one. I remember going to Anna and saying, hey, honey, we, we need to go on a date in another county where nobody knows us. And I, I need to order a glass of wine. She's like, what? I'm like, no, I don't want to drink. Well, yeah, I actually do really want to drink because I really like wine. But, but that's not why I want to drink. I want to drink so that I can no longer say I don't drink anymore because I'm getting arrogant in my abstinence. So I need to take it out so that I can't say. And then the Lord said, hey, Gunner, NyQuil works just fine. <laughs> when you get sick, you do consume alcohol to keep myself humble. And many years, I don't know, about 10 or so years ago, my father-in-law, who's also a pastor, he said something that resonated with me and is a kind of a governing verse that I try to keep in the back of my mind. He said, Gunnar, we want to hold ourselves to the highest biblical standards that we can. And to everybody else, we want to hold them to the very bottom of the barrel, the very minimum of biblical standards. But we're so good at flipping it to where we hold everybody else to the highest and we can excuse everything for ourselves. And there's tension there. One of my favorite hymns, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Yes, he paid it all. Yes, we live our lives for him. But living our lives for him, it's, it's, it's suspended under grace. We're not earning anything. It's out of love. It's out of relationship. But it's easy for us to get this off, off, off track. And this is where our story begins. In this section, we're going to see six times the word Sabbath. The Sabbath had become something that God never intended it to be. And in the first verse, it said, Now, it happened that he, that's Jesus, was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath. And his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating the grain. So here they're, they're in the Galilee region. They're walking through grain fields. The law stated in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, when you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not weld a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. So as you're walking, you are allowed to reach off in, in valley center terms. If you're walking down the road, there's an orange grove here. If you could stand on the road and reach an orange, You are allowed to eat the orange and eat it to satisfy your hunger. They were hungry. They're going down in the other text. So they're hungry, so they're popping off. I've never eaten raw grain, but apparently you pluck it off. I have eaten raw grain. Oh, Anna's. uh, So so you pluck it off, and I guess you kind of like rub it in your hands, and then there's parts you can eat, and so they're they're nibbling on it. They're eating away, doing what they're supposed to do. What the law said is you're not allowed to bring out the John Deere tractor and start harvesting your neighbor's field throwing it in your pickup truck and then going to your house and start selling it or stockpiling. Makes sense. So all they're doing is reaching across. Now, all of a sudden in verse 2, some of the Pharisees said, I don't know if these Pharisees are following along, 
if they were hiding in the grain bushes and jumped out and said, ah, you're working on the Sabbath, eating grain. The first thing I want to point out is I have circled in my Bible, it says some. You can circle some. I've circled, I give you total liberty to mark up your Bible. And it's not mine, so I authorize it. <laughs> We're so quick to condemn everybody connected with the group. Luke does not condemn all Pharisees. If you skip down to uh, Luke 13.33 and Acts 15.5, and these two stories... In Luke 13, the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees come to Jesus and they give him warning. Hey, they're going to condemn you. They're going to try to get you. You need to get out of here. They were good Pharisees. And then Jesus gave them a message to give back to them. And then they took off. And then in Acts 15, after the church had been established at the Jerusalem Council, we see that there were believing Pharisees. Those who had trusted in Christ were there debating, discussing the matter of the, the topic at hand. And so he's not condemning all Pharisees. And we're so quick as Christians to condemn certain groups to say, oh, there you fill in the blank. Now, the group might have bad theology, bad doctrine, but that doesn't mean that that person does. And so some Pharisees jump out and said, you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath. See, now, what did the Sabbath say? What was the requirement? The the heart of the Sabbath was that you take a day off, that you rest. You recuperate from your labor. You worship the Lord. Now the Talmud. I want to get my facts right here. The Talmud, which is the the rabbis, you know, created all of the laws based on the Bible. They expanded them just to make it more user friendly. Apparently, the Talmud devotes 24 chapters to the Sabbath laws. Like, could you reach with one hand, pull the grain to your mouth? Is that working? No. I think you could do it with the same hand, but if you pulled it from one hand and then transferred hands and then put it to your mouth, that was working. There's extensive, extensive, extensive laws. There was one rabbi who thought he wanted to study it so he could make it more user-friendly. He studied one chapter of the Talmud on the Sabbath for two and a half years to try to get clarity. So what had God had designed, as Jesus says in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, the same story, he tells the Pharisees that Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What was designed to give humans a day of rest, a time of worship set apart for God, they had turned into this long list of do's and don'ts to where the, you would dread the Sabbath. Because you had, there were, there was more constraints and then Jewish people would start doing, well, you're only allowed to walk a mile from your house. Ah, well, if I grab a handful of sand from my house, put it in my pocket, then I'm always within a mile of my house. That's not what God intended. There are other ones, there's exceptions that in the town that only a mile from your house, but on water, you can go even further because it's harder to measure a mile on water. So they'll take a water bottle, put it underneath their car seat, drive around everywhere because they're sitting over water. This is not the heart of the Sabbath. And they had manipulated the heart of the Sabbath. And we do this all the time. I don't know if you've ever had anybody jump out of the bushes at you telling you that you're breaking Sabbath regulations. The closest story I can think of, kind of, it's funny, so I'm making it work, kind of, and 
was about eight years ago, I was working with Miles McPherson. They were, we were doing outreaches, and it was at one of the big stadiums, so I forget they've changed the name. I think it's Cricket Amphitheater now. Um, it was 4th of July. We were going to have a big outreach. There was like all kinds of fun and games to celebrate the 4th, Christian bands, and Miles was going to share the gospel afterwards. As we're pulling up early in the morning, we see these picketers lined all around. And the sign that the one guy was holding... It said miles, but miles was a slip cover. So if you removed it, I got closer and you could see they had ones for Billy Graham, Greg Laurie, all of the evangelists. So you could slip on different covers. But today it was miles and said miles leads people to hell. And it's like, oh, no, what are we supposed to do? And my father-in-law says, let's just go spend the day with them. Because if they're talking to us, they're not talking to unsuspecting people, you know. Sounds great. So we got to know them. The leader of the group, his name was Pastor um, Darwin Fish. You can go to atruechurch.com. It's, 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 and we're talking to these guys over and over and over and over again, trying to do different things. And finally, my father-in-law, who is probably one of the most spiritually minded people that I know, looks at him and says, you know what? I'm willing to throw everything down. Maybe I have been doing everything wrong and misinterpreting scripture all of these years of my life. I'm here to submit myself to you in theory. Like, I want to hear your answer first. But if I submit myself to you, what would you tell me? How could I become right with God? I'll, I'll, whatever, whatever you say, I'll consider it seriously. And if you're right, I want to do whatever God wants. And you might be right. So Darwin kind of scratches his chin. He says, now, now, you're on staff with Miles McPherson? Uh, yes, sir, I'm on staff. I'm one of the pastors on his, his church. He kind of shakes his head. He's like, sorry, man, I don't think there's anything you can do ever. He's like, well, what if I resign? He's like, nope, you're, what? <laughs> you're connected with Miles, so nev- there's nothing you can do. He had so written all these rules that nobody could be right with God. And we're like, is there any church out there that meets the biblical standards? And he looks, he's like, well, we're not saying that we're the only true church because we it's a true church. He's like, but we just don't know of anybody else. And we're like, well, what, what now? How can you go back in history? The 1500s, the 1400s. He's like, well, we're pretty sure that at Pentecost, they were okay. But since then, we're... And we have this in us. This week, okay, our families, a little confession here. We love root beer. We love root beer. We, Josh and I, we were kind of joke, you know, and Anna's like, you know, we're having the church picnic last week to celebrate. It's like, hey, Josh, can you get me a beer from the cooler, please? <laughs> sure, he gets his little Barks root beer, and we go there. And I'm like, oh, yeah, they love root beer. We need to do it up. You can't get root beer overseas. And so on Monday night or Tuesday night, we were going to go up to their house. We we're going to make homemade pizza. And I go down to Henry's and I want to get the good stuff. Virgil's micro brewed root beer comes in beer bottles. And so there I'm at Henry's. Where, where do you buy this stuff? I want to get the cold stuff so that it's up there. So I'm in the aisle of Henry's in the beer section because it just seems most logical because that's where the cold root beer would be. And so... There's so many different types of beers these days. You can't, it's in the micro brewed root beer looks just the same as beer. And so I'm looking at the shells. Nope, that's not root beer. That's not root beer. That's not root beer. And then it starts dawning on me. I'm like, uh oh. What if somebody who's a Christian 
sees me staring at all the beer. They're going to think I went off the deep end. Oh, no, what if? Okay, I don't see any root beer here. So I'm, I'm like, well, maybe it's in the wine section. So I'm going through the wine, and I'm like, oh, man, like maybe it's not there. It was eventually, there was no cold stuff. We had to bite in the soda section. Who, who knew? But, and then Josh and I all week are talking about this text. And so then we have the pizza made. We're at the cabin. It's dark outside for you who are tactical people. They have lit inside, open windows, dark outside. They can see everything you're doing. Like, what if people are outside? We got all this pizza laid out. There's like eight root beer bottles that look like we're going to town. What will people think? And we all go from the King James Version of whatever the verse is. that We avoid the appearance of all evil. You guys have all heard that? that? That's a really poor translation. Not the King James Version, just that one particular thing. It really should state, avoid all forms of evil. Because you can't avoid the appearance of evil, but there's this side of me that's going, well, what if they think I'm like, fall, fell off the wagon and I'm buying all this stuff? And this is just my thought if I happen to like, if it's shorter to get to the bakery section at Vaughn's and I have to go through the wine aisle, I'm, the whole time I'm there, I'm like, I'm going to bump into somebody in the wine aisle. But then the reality is, there's freedom to have a glass of wine. And so even if I did have a bottle of wine going to check out, like, there's freedom there. But in my heart, it's like, oh, no. No, 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 no. And this is what they're doing. They're saying, you break the Sabbath. Well, you didn't break, he didn't break the Sabbath. He broke their rules related to the Bible. It wasn't from the scripture. God never intended it. It's even more funny because Jesus created everybody. He wrote the Bible. All of the Bible is Jesus' inspired word. And so they're pointing the fingers, writing tickets, and he's looking at them going, "Ah, guys, I'm the one who gave the Bible. I created you. I created your scribes. I gave them the ability to write perfectly for so long. And now you're trying to tell me, the creator and sustainer of the... You guys, come on. But I love... See, I don't have to prove to any of you that I'm not God. Because I would not respond like Jesus. Jesus does not... Get into a big theological argument with them. He simply looks at them in verse 3 and he says, Jesus answered them and said, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry and, and he and those who were with him and how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except for the priests alone, and gave it to his companions? He, he just says, Oh, you guys, you know the whole Bible. Don't you remember that story back in 1 Samuel? First Samuel something or other. It's up behind me, but I'll turn my notes. It, verses 1 through 9, chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. David's on the run from Saul. He's hungry with all of his men. He goes to like the, I think it was a tabernacle place. Is that right? I think it was a tabernacle. It wasn't the temple. Mile north of Jerusalem. Priests were starving. Do you have any food? Now all I have is the consecrated bread. This is for priests to eat alone according to the law. But we're really hungry. Can we eat it? Well, have any of your men been with women? He says, no, no, we've been, we haven't been with women at all. We're, we're pure. Okay, I'll give you the bread. David's men was above the law during this case because of the heart. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says this about this passage that Jesus relates to them. He says, the parallel in Jesus' teaching was clear. 
In the interest of survival, David and his companions were allowed to be above the law with the priest's blessing. Christ and his companions were also above the man-made law which the Pharisees proclaimed. Another parallel implicit in Jesus' teaching should not be missed. David, as God's anointed, was being hounded by the forces of a dying dynasty, the dynasty of Saul. Jesus was God's new anointed one who was being hounded by the forces of a dying dynasty. So as David relates this story to them, certainly they got it. And then he goes on, even if they didn't get it, he was going to drive the nail home the whole way. And he was saying to them, the son of man, that's him. See, I can't wander away from the text because I'm not bad at Bible memory. Is Lord of the Sabbath. He says, I am Lord over all. These rules that you are making are not consistent with my teaching. You know the story. This isn't the first time this has been ha- happened in Scripture. And then Luke right, goes on to a second story related to the Sabbath. Maybe this next week. We don't know. And we're told on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. So he's teaching in the synagogue. Certainly he's teaching new life. We, his teaching amazed his hearers. And there's a man who had his right hand and it was withered. We've probably seen guys like this with atrophies. Curls up and it's totally unusable. So there's a guy in there like that. Certainly because not everybody in this room is blessed to be a left-hander like myself. Because we're God's special chosen people. <laughs> this was most likely his, his working hand. And so he's not able to do vocation. So this is significant for him. His hand is shriveled. He's there. Jesus is teaching. Verse 7. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath. So that they might find reason to accuse him. See, they're not in the Sabbath. They're not there in the synagogue to worship God, to give glory, to learn, to be humble before him. They're only there. He going to break more of our rules. Is he going to heal on the Sabbath? They were going out of their way to bring accusation against Jesus. And I guarantee you, if you follow Christ, there are people that are watching you simply. Oh, look at that. You're not perfect. Oh, brother, don't, I'm not perfect. Jesus paid it all because I'm not perfect and I'm still not perfect. It's a process of sanctification one day in heaven. Oh, then I'll be restored. So don't get all frustrated when your friends like call you out and say, well, what, don't you remember that? It's like, oh, yeah, I've been trying to forget about that bad thing ever since whenever, you know. They're there just to point their fingers at him. In verse 8, but he knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. So he knows why they're there. He looks at the guy and he says, hey, can you come up front, please, sir? Sure, I'll come up. And he's going to pose them a series of questions related to their law. See, they had said there were two there were two conditions that you could do medical treatment on the Sabbath. The first was have a baby because babies come on their own time. And if a baby's coming in on Saturday, that baby's coming in on Saturday. And they recognize that. Okay, if a baby's being born, the doctor can work and do his stuff or the midwife or whatever. They can treat it. The second thing was a life or death situation. 
If the person is going to die, then they were able to act and treat the person to save their life. So I don't know how this all worked out. I don't know if there was an accident on the side of the road and they got a crew of people to say, okay, do we think he's going to make it today? Do we think we can put this off till Monday? No, I think he'll die if we don't. So, okay, doctors, you're good to go. I, I don't know how the flow chart happened, but there was a process. And so on this Saturday, this guy has a withered hand. He's not usable. He's standing before everybody. Jesus is now asking them questions on the law. The only true emergency was for this guy. If you have a hand that doesn't work, then it matters to you. But as far as their law was concerned, it could wait till Monday or Sunday the next day. And he asked them a series of questions. Is it okay to do this on the Sabbath, to heal or to do harm, yada, yada, yada? And, and I love it. There's like silence. And you see him like walking in the people. Now, Zach, what do you think? So, pass. <laughs> now, what do you think, Larry? Pass. Rick, pass. Everybody's passing because they don't want to put their their heart. Because, oh, man, this Jesus guy's good. <laughs> he keeps getting us. And so nobody answers. And so Jesus just looks at the guy. Hey, stretch out your hand. Stretches out his hand, healed totally, perfectly. He's restored. And we all think in our fallen nature that if we were there, oh, we would not have this reaction. We would have bowed out and worshiped for he's God. No, that's just us. We always, whatever the hero is in the story of the Bible, we, we identify with him. But the reality is, guys, we're all the failures. We would have responded just like this because he's getting, he's saying something that cuts against the core of what they believe. And not only saying it, but proving that he's the Messiah. But they themselves were filled with rage. And discuss together what they might do to Jesus. And from this moment, they continued plotting all the way till he was crucified. Because he was claiming to be God. And that was blasphemy to them because he couldn't be God. Trying to get my mind in order. See, I'm speeding up. I'm getting to the part where we're going to have to start handing the baton over. Jesus made it clear that he was Lord over everything. That he was the Messiah. They missed everything that he was doing right in their midst. And we have to be careful because we'll say, well, if we were there, if we were those Pharisees, man, we would have bowed down and we wouldn't miss it. But folks, I guarantee you we're missing the boat in so many different areas because we get used to our preferences and we start thinking, God said, preaching out of the New American Standard is the best translation to use. So if somebody in the community preaches out of the NIV or the New King James, I mean, they're spiritual and all, but it's just they're a notch below what I use because I use. We, we have all our things. And as I look at the story, there's really two sides. And Josh and I talking, see, we're very different, Josh and I. We have our backgrounds are about as polarized as they, they can be. I was totally like against the Lord covered in tattoos, drinking, all kinds of stupid stuff, finally came to Christ in my young 20s. Josh was circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, according to the law, blameless. Homeschooled. 
went to church like the he was born on a Wednesday and he was in church on a Saturday, Sunday. Yeah, I mean, blameless. We are so far different, but we're united not because of where we've been, but because of where we're going. And for me, there's two sides. See, I was, I, I, I'm going to do this a little bit different, I thought. I'm going to kind of give my side first because it made sense to, see, not being a Christian, not raising in Christian culture, man, I I knew that I was already condemned. I knew there was nothing I could... And I was raised Catholic of all things. And Catholic, man, you know the fear of the Lord and your inadequacies and how you cannot meet the standard. I was not... Uh, and half of you are going to get this and half of you aren't. And I, if you don't get it, you don't go look it up. But my understanding of Christianity, that if I wanted to be a Christian, I had to look like Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. He's perfect, always happy, wearing a tie, has a sweater vest on all the time, never, ever, ever gets upset. And I thought, man, I, like, I can barely meet the Ten Commandments standard. How in the world am I going to look like? I can't do it. I'm done. I'm out of here. It took me years to, to then realize what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast like it dawned on me one day after being in i started going to church for free pizza and my friend was nagging me to go and i thought i could get out of it by going to church and i said listen i'm wearing shorts and a t-shirt and flip-flops i was raised in the church i'm not playing by all your rules and the deal is you never asked me to go to church again and by going i learned wow god like these people in the church they don't care i'm wearing shorts and an old t-shirt and flip-flops and they're giving me free pizza and then this message that I started hearing was that, you know, God loves you. He created you. He paid it all for you on the cross. There's nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. He covered it. Awesome. What's relation, relationship with God? So I was saved. And then Ephesians 2.10, as my years went by, it says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in him. And see, this is where I struggled. I, I fell back. I thought, well, now that I'm a Christian, now I own a Bible, I go to church, I was going to a Bible study midweek. Now I had to begin my coursework of becoming Ned Flanders. And no offense to Ned Flanders. Because some people, that's who you are. We all are different. We all have our own preferences. I think there's nothing more beautiful that in this world that, that God's word is spoken in Mongolian, is spoken in Spanish, is spoken in Thai, and how they worship in music and praise and behavior. It all reflects who they are. And all of this together shows God's beauty. But I struggled because I'm like, I can't just be like, a surfer who likes to have fun. I've got to fit this image of what it means to be a Christian. And now as a pastor raising a ch- two children who are not getting the same upbringing as me. They're the pastor's kid. Their grandpa is a pastor. Their mom was raised in the church. They know church life. Grace, it too, gets mad when people sit in her seat. She knows. I'll never forget when Miss Pat sat in Grace's seat and she was furious. This was like a year and a half ago and she's only five. 
And I wanted Josh to come up. I'm going to do a little microphone switch here. And Josh, see, I, I don't understand in large part what he's talking about. But there's a number of us in this room that will identify with what he has to say. Boy, this is really a treat. This is a huge honor. And this really is, this is a soapbox, but it, it's more than that. It really is my life in a nutshell. And I'll just have to condense it a lot because I can get going off on different tangents here really easily on this issue of grace. And I love talking about grace, especially for believers. And I think like Gunnar just said, I think that was one of my issues from the very beginning was that I understood very clearly from the time I was six that I was saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But I didn't understand that I, that I was to walk and I was sanctified by grace just as much so. So I want to just take you through this process and share a little bit about my journey from legalism to grace. Um, like that, that introduction that Gunnar gave, all of it was true. Um, I was born again at the age six. I was, uh, I was in a Christian home, obviously, um, from that time on. And I was homeschooled on top of that. And all these things just added to the experience that I had in my childhood. And I want to, I want to say this, though, up front. None of those externals were bad. Like, obviously not being saved at six years old was bad. I was never unreached. I, I heard the gospel from the time I was born. I praise the Lord for that. Um, it wasn't bad being uh, homeschooled either. Um, but the point is, as I start this, is that Legalism does not, how did I say it? It was really good. Legalism is no respecter of style or externals. And in my case, in my background, it happened to be the fundamental, conservative, tie-wearing, you know, Bible, King James, and I do like the King James still, but it's for other reasons, text. We won't go into that. Anyways, but, um, but KJ carrying, um, Homeschool going, whatever. Um, no synch- uh, syncopated music, by the way. No backbeat. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with syncopation, that's a big word in, in my former circle. But, the, but, but these were the things that defined me. My significance and my identity was based on these externals. But I will say so that if that doesn't relate to you, the other extreme relates as well. If the extreme is or the external exterior is contemporary, or some trend that is in today, and that is the basis for your significance, it's just as much legalism. It's just, I looked more like a traditional legalist, and I was. I was a good legalist, but I'll go on. Um, but it was interesting, as I, as I grew up, and homeschooling was the avenue that, that my legalist at heart, and, and I, I do believe that we all are legalists at heart because we have, a, we have the flesh, we have a sin nature, um, Adam wanted to cover up immediately after he sinned. Um, there was something he wanted to do immediately after he broke that relationship with God. But, um, <clears throat> see, I'm digressing already. Um, but through homeschooling, I was, and the, and the group we were aff- affiliated with, there was this inroad to my legalist heart that just kind of thrived, and it was allowed to just go crazy. And, uh, and that, was a, that was an avenue that I went down, and it wasn't good. It was very bad. It was, it's what shaped a lot of my growing up years then. But the funny thing was, like, this is where Gunnar and I are very, very different. Um, the legalism was very attractive. I was an introvert. My personality was I could process all this inside, and I could 
reproduce whatever I wanted on the outside. And so to me, because this external, because I happen to be in this, um, this uh, culture, if you, yeah, cocoon, right? Right, cocoon, this, this culture that I, that I was raised in, um, that I was comfortable with, um, this then became kind of the litmus test for my spirituality. And, and it was attractive to me because I could actually do the things that were in, placed in front of me. I was a human. I liked to do. I liked to be in control. And the, again, the group, the cocoon I happened to be in, the culture that I was in, concurred with how I thought and what was comfortable with me. Um, <clears throat> so life went on, and uh, it was comfortable. But years went on in this group, and it was interesting. I, I could do a lot of it. it was, that wasn't the issue, really. But the question that I always came back to was, was I doing enough? Like, I am all into doing this, okay? But can I really do enough? And so I never had a security at all. In fact, I remember in middle school, I was not raised in these circles at all um, of doubting eternal security. But here I was because the law that I was placing on myself, I all of a sudden lived in this fear of, am I keeping my salvation? Am I sustaining my salvation enough? Or am I proving that I was saved in the first place? And so I was backloading the gospel that I knew so well with all this exterior, all this performance. And this was my identity. This was my, my value. Um, <clears throat> so I'll just say this since I'm here. I just was thinking last night, legalism robs grace of all of its provision, motivation, life, rest, peace. It does. It robs it. And that's what I was experiencing as I went into high school. A big thing happened in high school when I was 15. My mom was diagnosed with cancer when I was 10, and she died when I was 15. And we were very close. You can imagine, because I was homeschooled, the relationship was very, very close, even closer than normal, probably. Um, and that was huge. And so all of a sudden, here I'm, I'm basing my identity, my security on my performance. I'm not finding any joy, no rest, no security. Now my mom's gone, and I'm like, boy, I, it's not that I don't just lack rest and peace. I need it now. Like, there was no other time in my life because of something being stripped away so abruptly and like this. Um, there was no other time in my life that I realized I needed something more. I needed rest. I needed comfort. And it was way beyond what I could manipulate and what I could uh, come up with on my own. So the Lord really used that, like the death of my mom talking about life out of death in John 12, like that was the epitome to me because from that time on through her death, I, I realized a need that I didn't really realize I had before that time. I really didn't honestly see the need for something, although I still didn't know what it was. And remember, I'm a believer here. Like I, I understood the gospel and we're talking about further on in my life, walking with Christ <clears throat> that I really didn't understand yet. So I graduated from high school and the Lord led me to Bible college. And I, I realized in the first service, I don't want to make it sound like the Bible college was what it took to, to teach me. Like, it's a requirement to teach you these truths. Like, I was just dense enough. I had to sit under teaching, like, 24-7 for how many years? That's the only difference. You, it's right here in his word. It's not a school or an institution. Um, <clears throat> but for the first time... I started realizing that my legalism now was kind of bleeding into how I treated other people. And it was interesting because, remember, I had been broken 
I was like, there's something lacking here. I need something to help me. I, I'm not living a victorious Christian life at all. I'm a failure. So even with that thought, I go into school, and here we are in the dormitory, dormitories and living in pro, close proximity to people like I never had before growing up. And all of a sudden, I am just going, in my heart, going ballistic about what other people are or are not doing. And again, it usually wasn't important things. It was a, it, it was things that uh, really had no bearing on anything spiritual, really of no importance at all. They just didn't matter. And I had people, praise the Lord, that came alongside of me and said, Josh, do you see what you're doing? Like they could see the, 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 the judgmental spirit that I had, but that wasn't the issue. They were wise enough to say, like, let's, let's, look, at, let's look, the, look at the word of God. Let's look at the Christian life. It's not just being about judgmental. It's like, why are you being judgmental in these ways about certain things that don't matter? That was the big thing. Um, and so they did. I was dis- just discipled by these guys. And in the word so much, I started to see that these truths were throughout the New Testament, especially about my life in Christ that I had never understood, never tapped into as the basis for what I do and why I do it. And one of those verses that really jumped out to me then, and it's still, I just love it. It's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. And it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And this just, uh, this truth just jumped out like accepted. And and even if you don't like that translation choice, um, grace, favor, being freely bestowed, freely bestowed. Because I'm in the beloved, because I'm in the one that God loves like more than anything, his own begotten son. And that's why I'm accepted. It's not because I do or don't do certain things. It's not because I am comfortable in this culture, this cocoon that I I was in before or that I was performing well. My identity and my significance, my security had to all of a sudden be based on him and him alone. The same person I said I trusted for my salvation. I was saved by grace through faith in him. Now I'm walking by grace through faith in him. And it just smacked me upside the head. I, I wish I would have seen it earlier, but it was, it was fundamental because then some of those judgmental issues that I had concerning other people kind of just fell away. Like I could see that they didn't matter. Like they really didn't. And I could stand on truth in a new way. Sometimes people think grace is just kind of lackadaisical and complacent and has no standard. Folks, grace is like, when I started realizing this, that you start reading in the New Testament what the standard is under grace, it way exceeds the Mosaic law. It outseeds, it extends and exceeds everything I could come up with on my own like I did before. I have to be in the beloved. I have to be in Christ to be able to live victoriously. And I was realizing, wow, so Lord, my acceptance is based on your provision, not my performance. And that was huge. Um, another one, just go here. How are we doing here? Uh, time-wise. Romans chapter 8.32. Real quick. Just love this one. This is such a sweet picture of grace to me. It doesn't use the word grace, but it defines it so incredibly. Um, Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? 
And just like Paul was talking to the Ephesian believers, he's talking to the Roman believers now. They're saved by grace. They understand that. And now he's talking about walking in grace. And he's talking about the truth that they are to walk on in grace. And the fact that God wouldn't spare his own son, would he? He didn't. So why would we think he'd spare providing everything for us in that same grace that gave us his son? Like, meaning everything we need for life and godliness, everything I need in my Christian life, I don't have to search for in some phony, fake um, culture or identity or do's and don'ts. <laughs> he is going to. He is my provision. He will provide everything I need to live godly and victoriously. And, I, and the illustration that comes to mind... It might break down, but I kind of like it. I love, like, stomper trucks. Like, I love jacked-up trucks. Like, if I had a lot of money to blow, that's what I'd blow it on. And um, that, and I said this before, blowing is kind of relative. I shouldn't say that in case somebody has a stomper truck, because I wish I had one. No. But I, I, I love those things. They're so fun. And I just was thinking, I thought of this years ago, like, just picture something you like like that, like, in the physical realm, something you'd, you would use. Would I go to the dealership and... And if someone gave me a free, you know, 350 jacked up glass packs ready to go, if he gave it to me for free, this anonymous person, would I, would I say, hey, great, that's great. Can I get a picture of it? I'm going to mount it on my, you know, mantle and look at it at home. I'll just enjoy it there. No. And that's how ridiculous it is when I think I've been given everything in grace and yet, I don't take the key, and I don't use what he's given me. It's still true, even if I don't. It's there. That's grace. <laughs> it's unconditional. But if I don't use it, what a shame. What a shame. And, uh, and that, that is still my story. This is still a process. I have not figured it out. I just understand a little bit more. And praise God for that, because that is his grace again. Um, yes. So... Praise him that our identity and our acceptance, our security, our significance is in his provision, his provision in Christ. Who we are in him now, what he's given to us in Christ. So praise him for his wonderful grace. Thank you. Amen. And I'm going to land this thing. Um, you save your clapping for me, please. You know, makes me want <laughs> uh, but, but open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. You should be close. So Romans chapter 5, and I'm going to switch mics here while you guys turn. Focus on this. There's a passage. I'm going to read this, story, read this passage, tell a story, and close. We're really close. Okay, so in Romans chapter 5, kind of summarizing this, together, summarizing this together for both sides of the coin, wherever you are, Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, justified means that before God we're just, through faith. Ephesians 1.13 says, After hearing the gospel, you believed. At that point, you're sealed in the Spirit. Believing in what Jesus did, that's all it takes. No works, no anything. Jesus paid it all totally and completely. And when you have faith and you believe upon him, you're totally justified from the Lord, by the Lord, resulting in we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only reason we have peace with God or of God is through faith, through whom also we have obtained our introduction or access by faith into this grace. See, now we read grace and we think that's the means or the mode by which we're saved. But look at what it says here. It says, into this grace in which we stand. Uh, total conf confessing to you guys, I don't think of grace as something I stand in. I think of grace as this is something that God has poured out upon me that I don't deserve. But to stand in grace, this is a strange concept to me. 
and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Now, a few years ago, before I was a Christian, something happened to me that after becoming a Christian helped me to understand this. It was probably about, oh, I don't know, um, 94 or so, I was getting ready to go through SEAL training. There was a year gap there where I had to go study or be assigned to a special warfare group two, where I was assigned to a SEAL, and basically the SEAL's job was to harass me, make my life miserable, to toughen me up to see if I would be better prepared for SEAL training. During this time, we were able to fly down to Puerto Rico and do some stuff down in Puerto Rico. It was awesome. I was like 19 years old in Puerto Rico, hanging out with the SEAL who was, yeah, he's sticking me in ice coolers and stuff like that, but it was all worth it. And one day we go down to the dock, and at the dock were these two cigarette boats, like Miami Vice style, huge boats, two engines per boat. Each engine has 550 horsepower, huge engines, could do like 80 knots. To drive the boat, it took three guys. They looked like NASCAR drivers with their helmets. They had back braces the whole way. Guy in the center, all he does is steer. The guy on the right, all he does is the throttle. And the guy on the left, all he does is the pitch because they launch off the swells. And if they don't cut the motor or do the pitch right, they'll flip the boat over or do somersault. Very dangerous. 80 80 nautical miles an hour is, the technical term is hauling. Fast. And these guys are SEAL Team 6, Naval Special Warfare Development Group. This is like what I'd read about. And so there we are at the pier. The guy who's thumping on me was a student when he went through SEAL training of one of these dev group guys. He's all talking on the pier, and I'm just in my short UDT shorts kind of trying to act all cool. Like, yeah, I'm one of them. Don't ask me any questions. I've got to pull it off so they just assume I'm a SEAL or things are going to go really bad for me. They say, hey, To the guy that I was hanging out with, he's like, yeah, why don't you go for a ride? We're going to go up. We're going to shoot up this island. It'll be awesome. Yeah, feel free. So he's hopping in the boat. I'm kind of standing there like, do I go or do I stay? And I'm kind of looking at him. He's like, hop on in, Gunner, you know. And so in the back row, there's there's two rows of three seats each. They each have their own back brace and a handlebar to hold on to. Then there's the row behind the drivers with no back brace, only a handlebar. That was my spot. (laughs) <laughs> and so I'm standing there at the thing, holding on to the handlebar, and the guy with the helmet kind of goes like, listen, we're going to be, the swells are pretty intense right now. We don't think we can get up to 80 knots, but we'll be able to get up to 60, no problem. I'm like, 60, no problem, okay. I had no, no concept of what that meant. He's like, now listen, when we hit these swells, our goal is to launch off the, the one swell and land on the backside of the other swell. And so once we get airborne, you're going to hear total silence. And that's because we've got to cut the engines. Now, just when we land, it's all in the knees, you know, just like brace yourself like this, you know, like little cushion. Okay, no problem. I'm I'm inside. I'm so giddy. I can barely hear like I'm hanging out with real Navy SEALs. This is awesome on the cigarette boat. What does 550 horsepower preaching mean? I don't know. But I can tell they start the thing up and it's like like the whole thing's shaking. You can't hear once they start. And we start going out of the harbor. And all of a sudden, he's like, okay, guys, hang on. I heard hang on. And then all of a sudden, I experienced two engines with 550 horsepower. And I'm like, hang on. He meant hang on. And then all of a sudden, we hit this first wave, total silence. And it was like the time stopped. 
But the problem was my feet left the ground. So I'm like flying like Superman on this bar. And I'm, I'm like, okay, take it in the knees, take it in the knees. Then, then all of a sudden we land, it's like, and I'm like, oh no, I got to get back up here. It was the ride of my, I mean, so much fun, so horrifying. I thought I was toast. And then as a non-believer, I'm hanging on or trying to hang on. Dear Lord, if you only spare my life for this moment. And finally we come to a stop and they're going to start shooting. It's like, man, awesome. I survived. We still got to make it back the 40 miles or however far we came. And then we're kind of casually talking. It's like, oh yeah. So looking at the guy that beat me up, he's like, so I forgot what, what butts class were you in that I put you through? And the guy's like gave his number. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was kind of cool. I remember your class. He looks at me and he says, well, what, what, butt class were you, what butts class were you in? Uh-oh. Well, I'm going to be in 198. He said, wait, wait, did you just say going to be? I, I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually leave in September to go through SEAL training. He's like, get out of the boat. Middle of the Caribbean. <laughs> get out of the boat? He just did this. Jumped out of the boat. And I'm like, man, now what? Is that going to leave me? Is it? That's a 40 miles is a long swim back. They eventually let me back in. And so then I'm trying to like hang on dripping wet for the wild ride home. It was horrible. I was like, I just want this thing to end. This isn't fun. This is crazy. Finally, we get to the end of the road and we get to where we turn into the harbor. And my hands at this point were like welded, like in this spot from holding so tightly where you're like shaking. Like what just happened? I don't know what just happened. And then we pull into the harbor and I could let go. And it was just like, oh, this, this is so nice. I can just stand here and uh, look cool coming into the porch, you know, like all the people. They're going to think I'm one of them. And the point is, there is a point. Back to Romans chapter 5, verse 2. It says this faith into this grace in which we stand. Yes, God totally and completely saved you by grace alone. Don't fall backwards after you're a Christian. Or if you're not a Christian, don't think you have to become Ned Flanders in order for God to accept you. He's totally, he paid it all. And in the Christian life, when we start thinking that our worth comes from doing certain things, looking a certain way, being super spiritual, what we're doing is is we're leaving the harbor and we're getting out into that terrible rough seas. Because if we're honest with ourselves, before God, we're not, we're, there's nothing we can do. So God saves us by grace, but he sustains us in grace. We're to live in the Christian life under its grace, totally and completely. Father, we do thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that Jesus paid it all. Father, we thank you that you gave us this free gift of salvation. And we confess, Lord, that we're just about paying for stuff. And so the thought, Lord, is we wrestle, like I wrestle with this, Lord. As the hymn says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Yes, Lord, we owe you all. We're to live our lives for you. But it's born out of a love relationship, out of gratitude. Not to try to earn our worth, to pay back for our past deeds. So, Father, we pray that we here at this church, for everybody that's here present today or hears this message, Father, we pray that you would help us to stand in grace.
Father, guard us from our, our flesh, Lord, that likes to create rules. Father, we're thankful that Jesus' work on the cross was sufficient totally and completely for salvation and for living the Christian life. Lord, help us to abide in him. We love you, Lord. We praise you, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.